This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So, so today I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, about joyful effort. Um, and specifically, <clears throat> I was uh, looking at the opening lines of um, Ed Kanzi's um, translation of the Prajnaparamita Sutra, and it says, Call forth as much as you can of love and of faith. Listen to the teachings of the gentle Buddhas, taught for the happiness of the world, for the heroic spirits it is intended. So the last time I was here um, uh, speaking, um, I, was, I was talking about my um, endless pursuit of a fascination with how it is we prepare our mind to um, the bodhisattva practice, which is all of us, those who have decided that um, we want to live on the path of the Buddha and, and live for the benefit of all beings. Um, and, and the ways in which we can have our mind um, uh, and heart available for the thought of awakening. You know, uh, ultimate nirvana is for other people and other lineages, but the thought of awakening, as it's referred to in our text. Um, and I was thinking then, and talk, spoke a little bit about the six paramitas, and, and specifically the paramita um, in that talk about generosity and uh, dana, the gift of giving and receiving, the giver, receiver, and the gift not being three separate things, but being one thing. So I continue to be... Um, intrigued in my own practice and in the practice of those I work with, with this idea of how we keep our minds and hearts available um, for the path of liberation. Um, you know, some people seem to sink right in. They, they come to a lecture or they take a class um, in a bodhisattva vows or the precepts, um, and they sink right in and it becomes part of their way of life. Um, and they engage in this path sort of exactly as the Buddha had offered it. Um, others seem challenged by the call, um, by the opportunity, and by the responsibility, really, for our behavior. Because if we're on the bodhisattva path and we're living for the benefit of all beings, um, you know, that's a pretty awesome responsibility. Um, and I think part of the awesomeness of that, which I spoke about last time, is that all beings includes us, includes me. Um, and sometimes that's sort of easy to forget. But I think my intrigue with the concept of um, having our mind and heart available uh, for the thought of awakening <clears throat> really comes from um, the reality that for me and for most of us, I think, um, that even really seasoned practitioners, um, we have days or weeks or seasons, sometimes longer than that, um, when the Buddhist path seems right and simple. And when it seems like, yep, I'm, I'm committed to that, I've, I've lived, I'm living by my vow, I'm, I'm there. Um, and that other times, um, on other parts of the other days or other hours or other cycles, um, it seems really difficult. Um, seems like it's impossible. Um, and um, in some cases, um, I and others have even been known to think, well, it's really not in context with life in, in uh, 2019. And, and, um, a little bit silly for us all to be um, pretending to be medieval Japanese folks, um, you know, when, when there's real stuff going on in the world. 
So I was pleased when last week I got a copy of um, Norman Fisher's new book, The World Could Be Otherwise, if you haven't seen it. Um, I'm almost all the way through it, as you can see. Um, I like Norman's writing. He is a former abbot at the Zen Center and a poet and um, a teacher. And, and so it's called The World Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path. And it's his teaching on, on the paramitas. paramitas. Um, and so I think what I really like about the way he talks is because he's a poet um, and because he's, he is, teaches a lot about imagination, um, he has this way of saying that, you know, when we say in the vow, I vow, beings are numberless, I vow to save them or engage with them, depending on whose interpretation you use. And that seems like a really impossible thing. And, you know, Norman says that, imagine a world in which you actually could feed your life to the benefit of yourself and all other beings. Um, imagine a world in which you really do believe <coughs> that um, Prince said Arthur set out on a carriage one day and came back um, to set up the path of Buddhism for um, in the next 2,600 years. Um, imagine that, um, that that path of suffering and liberation um, made perfect sense. <clears throat> and that, as the sutras teach us, it's all a mental formation, every bit of it. So when at first um, you think about this or read, read these teachings, you think, it's not imagination, it's a deeply held commitment and vow and belief of mine based on history and sutras and facts. Um, and Norman has a wonderful, <coughs> gentle way of reminding us that, you know, in point of fact, it's all made up by somebody um, and then reinterpreted by us um, so that we can engage with it or use it or live with it. Um, so I think, um, I think for me, when I look at those cycles, when, when we practice and when we don't, um, some days life is really easy. You know, today's my birthday, as some of you know, so this is an easy day. I get to be here with you, I get to be with friends this afternoon and evening, and, and my health is good at a very, very advanced stage. <laughs> so it's all, today's all good. Um, now tomorrow, after I have a really good day today, and I try to stand up out of bed and the knees don't work, and you know, other stuff, it'll be a different story, but today's a good day. And so we all have good days where it makes sense that having followed the, the path of the Buddha and having tried to live by my vows for um, uh, more than 25 years now, um, it, it, this practice makes sense to me. And it's a way f to engage with myself, and it's a way to engage with all of you, and it's a way <clears throat> to be of service to the community. So, so I think that's, uh, those are days when it's easy to understand living by the precepts and, and engaging the paramitas. Then there are other days when um, the storm of life hits and, you know, all sorts of things go on uh, politically and health-wise and at the job and in relationships and friendships and with family. And it's just a shitstorm, frankly. Um, and I think those are also days when it's easy to have practice, when it's easy to say, oh, this is, this is difficult and on my own. Um, this would be frustrating or overwhelming. <clears throat> this would cause me great suffering and pain. Um, and so what can I count on on those days when it's really tough and really awful? Well, I can count on my practice um, because I have experienced that if I recommit to my practice and if I recommit to zazen and studying and being in touch with teachers and students, um, what happens for me is that life, I remember immediately that life um, everything arises, abides, and, and diminishes. 
And so even on the worst of days, my practice reminds me that I'll get through this. Um, and my practice allows me <clears throat> to say to friends and, and students, uh, and you'll get through it as well. But I think the days that um, are the difficult ones to keep practice are the days when it's just neutral, right? Everything's all right, nothing special, nothing bad. Um, but on those days, it's like, well, maybe I don't feel like waking up to go to Zazen on Saturday, um, or every day for those that live here. Um, maybe I don't feel like reading the sutra for this Thursday's class because I'm really busy doing important stuff like watching Game of Thrones, and I couldn't possibly take time to read the sutra. And, um, I, you know, sutras all say kind of the same thing, so I'll just make it up when we get to class on Thursday night. Um, or maybe I just don't feel like it. Um, everything's copacetic and I'm just going to move on through life. Um, so, so I think there are all three of those things that go on in our lives and, and yeah, that's just a reality. And so we know that the practice is available to us because we've all experienced it. We know that <clears throat> the bodhisattvas are available to us because in some ceremony or another, um, even if we haven't yet had Jukai or ordination, in some ceremony or other um, we've spoken them. <clears throat> and we know how simple they are and how beautiful they are. Um, so I think there's this opportunity for us to say, ah, so I'm having a day um, where I don't feel like doing it. Um, and so I don't have to judge myself about that. There's the, there's the important message. And I think I and, and most of us have learned um, throughout life um, to think of ourselves as performing or not performing as good or evil, as skillful or unskillful on a particular day or in relationship to a, sp a particular practice. Um, and I think that's true in terms of our, our following the Buddhist path as well, or living by the Bodhisattva vows. It's like, how am I doing? You know, am I doing okay? Am I, am I having a slacker day? Um, and is that, is that unskillful? Should I be constantly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, paying attention? And I think what we get to do is take a really deep breath and acknowledge that that nobody, um, including the Buddha himself probably, um, including our great teachers, including um, uh, Dogen Zinji and, and uh, Suzuki Roshi, nobody does that 24-7. I think it becomes our life, and as our life integrates with our promises, it's more likely that we make decisions and take actions and hold beliefs and speak words that come from a place of spiritual practice. But I think everybody has moments and days when it's just like, you know what, I just want to go to a movie or watch TV or go for a walk and, and not be, um, have spiritual practice be the central part of my life um, and be something for which I'm evaluating myself. Um, you know, and the Buddha said um, that the path is, is easy for those without preferences, right? So. I've rarely met anybody that doesn't have preferences. Um, you know, all you have to do is mention that guy that lives in Washington, and most of us have preferences that pop up pretty quickly. Um, and, and I'm not going to mention him by name because we don't want to get there today. Um, but we do have preferences, and we have biases, and we have judgments. And the truth of the matter is that, that when this expression is all sentient beings, um, and that includes us because those judgments usually um, start with us um, as well. Um, and judging ourselves as bad, or our behavior as bad, or our habits. So I want to read you a quote <clears throat> that says, um, Bad habits and bad instincts are not the same as bad people. 
we have to get away from the kill switch mentality that we um, see on Twitter. The idea that we have just sort people into baskets of good or baskets of evil ignores the central fact of our human existence, which is that each of us is a basket of good and evil. Our job is to summon the good and to diminish the unskillful components of our very humanness. Okay, so that's a quote that I really like. It comes from Pete Buttigieg. I was just going to say, I just heard him say that. I was like, <laughs> who's just he's running for president, as you all know, um, and and uh, I don't know if what his I know his spiritual practice as he refers to himself as a member of the Christian left, which I really I don't know what that means, but I respect it and appreciate it because <laughs> I know it makes certain other people crazy. So I like that. But this quote really is it's a basic teaching of the Buddha, right? That we are. Um, skillful and unskillful, that we are on the path and sometimes resting, that we are in the stream and sometimes out of the stream. And we come out of the stream for various reasons, having to do with rest or frustration or ill health, um, but we always have the capacity to be back in the stream. So I think um, that, you know, in some of the early basic teachings of Buddhism, um, they began um, with what Norman describes as a dis disarmingly simple insight. Life is essentially unsatisfactory and inevitably full of suffering. Life is essentially unsatisfactory and inevitably full of suffering. And yet, um, cultivating a thoroughgoing path, cultivating the path of the Buddha, um, can end to satisfaction and suffering. And we know that and we've been taught that. Um, and most of us have experienced it. Um, maybe not today, um, but yesterday, and, and if not today, because um, there's still lots of time left in today to grasp it, um, then tomorrow and, and in the days to come. And Norman offers a rendition, which um, in this book called The World Could Be Otherwise, of his interpretation of the Four Noble Truths, and they are this. Number one, suffering. All conditions existence is characterized by dissatisfaction and suffering. Two, origination. Dissatisfaction and suffering originate in the failure to use our imaginations to see things as they truly are. Stopping. We can stop suffering by opening our imagination to the truth of how things are and to enter the peace of nirvana. And path, number four. The way to affect this opening is through the practice of the Buddhist path of right conduct, right understanding, and right cultivation of mind and heart. So in order to do this, um, to, in order to follow those simple um, four noble truths, um, I think I love Norman's teachings about imagination because I think we talk a lot in, in, our, in our classes and in our conversations with each other about the idea of having fixed views. And I, I myself, um, I know that I hear that a lot and I think, I don't have fixed views. You know, I know the world is always changing. I'm aware of that and I'm aware that I'm always changing and each of you is always changing. So how could anything be fixed? That's just silly. Um, and yet, if called upon by, by a teacher um, to evaluate my Buddhist practice, um, how am I doing um, in terms of living by my vows, I would quickly um, be able to explain what I was doing, um, probably not well first, um, and then okay, and then eventually, um, if prodded and encouraged, we get to the things that I think I'm doing well. Um, and so I think the fact that, <clears throat> you know, that, that we do have those judgments um, and that we do have fixed views um, gives us this wonderful opportunity when walking the path of the Buddha to say, hmm, I do. Um, notice it when it arises and just don't get attached to it. It's like, yes, 
you know, I think you're sitting perfectly and, you know, you could be a little more upright and, and you I'm going to hit with the stick because you're slumping again. And, you know, uh, we have fixed views, <laughs> including that someday I'd like to hit someone with that stick. <laughs> but, but it won't happen, I promise. <laughs> but when I first came to practice, they were hitting people with the stick and I, I someday thought if I ever got one of these that it would be my turn. <laughs> Which shows you why I'm still working the path. <laughs> um, so sometimes we acknowledge those fixed views, sometimes we're just confused. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but every time I go to a class on, for instance, the Lankavatara Sutra, I fully understand it and I embrace it and I spend the next couple of weeks telling people it's my favorite sutra. And then I engaged um, someone like our abbot or another teacher who asked me a couple questions or suggest something that was in there. And I'm completely sure that I don't understand a word of it and that it couldn't possibly be my favorite sutra because I don't know what it means. Um, and so sometimes that confusion, you know, we're talking about things that are um, 22,000 or 2,500 years old that were given an oral tradition that were written down and translated many times. And so sometimes we're basing um, our experience on, on stuff that is almost intentionally or almost, there's no other way for it to be except confusing. Um, and so, so I think that this confusion should be part of our lives too, and not a, not a subject for judgment, not a subject for derision, just the fact that sometimes we're going to be confused. Sometimes we're going to be confused because yesterday at a ceremony I repeated my Bodhisattva vows, um, and then today um, I was impatient with someone, or today um, I was living for the benefit of all beings except those two over there who annoy me. So, you know, it's, there are times when I have the intention and my heart and my mind are sort of in balance, um, but I get confused. And, you know, sometimes um, we use the word, some, in, in teachings, the word lazy gets used. Like sometimes I'm just too lazy to, to get up and come to Zazen or to fully practice and to fully... Um, bring compassion and understanding and wisdom to all the people I'm going to encounter, um, either in person or in the media or wherever. And so, so we refer to that sometimes as lazy. Um, and I think that indeed some, sometimes we have a lazy day. Um, but I think that that's a good idea. I think we move much too quickly, the world move, moves much too fast. Um, and once in a while to just slow down. Um, to lie in the proverbial hammock in the backyard and just rest and just, just be still for a bit. Um, and I don't think that's not engaging in the Buddha's path. I think that that's a real opportunity um, for us to acknowledge that the body gets tired, the heart gets tired, the mind gets tired, and trying to keep all of that in balance is, is absolutely exhausting. And so I think that whether it's because we don't want to, because we're confused, or because we're having a, a lazy day, um, that we should embrace all of that as part of our humanness and not um, feel any obligation to judge ourselves negatively about that. So one of the teachings, um, and I heard this last night from someone, so I wanted to bring it here today and share it, um, of the Buddha that I find comforting, um, and I'll read you the quote so we get it exactly, is, you can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you yourself, and that person is not to be found anywhere. You, yourself, as much as anybody in the universe, deserves your love and affection. And so I think that's a, a mighty challenge for most of us. You know, we've come from families where um, we were the good son, good son or the not good son. Um, we were the brightest kid in school or we were not. We were the most athletic or we were not. Um, 
we were the best cheerleader or dancer or we were not. And so those sort of judgments come into our practice. And, and when we come to Buddhist practice or, or whatever spiritual community we might be in, there are ways to do it. There are precepts, there are commandments in the other one, um, in the other, one of the other ones. There are, there are things that we're supposed to learn and practice and do. Um, and most of us know in many temples, as you enter the, the temple itself, you enter with the foot that's farthest away from, and I've watched people, particularly at the San Francisco Zen Center, almost fall down as they start to come through the door and they realize they have the wrong foot out and then they try to pull their foot back and it gets very awkward and you can see in their face the pain of, oh, I'm not doing this right. And so I think that, that part of the, the precept um, that, that I want to talk about today, which is the precept of what Norman refers to as joyful effort, the Lyra, the precept of zeal or energy or enthusiasm that he calls um, uh, uh, joyful effort. And I think that that comes from this concept that we start by loving ourselves. And we start by acknowledging that on the good days and the not good days, that this practice uh, makes either of those days a little better or a little more sustainable or a little closer to our heart so that we can share it with others. So I'm not just holding that I'm having a great day, but I'm holding that um, if I'm not adding confusion and, and drama to the world, if I'm um, can, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, just bring that smile. If I can bring the smile, chances are it'll make somebody else feel a little better. Um, and that that itself is, is um, coming to an awakening. And so, you know, that humanness becomes really important. I think in the most ancient of, of the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha was seen um, and was taught as some rare and special person. He was the Holy One. He was... Um, you know, to be bowed down to and brought flowers to and all that sort of stuff. You know, sort of what we might think of these days as a superhero. You know, the Buddha could walk this path because he invented it and, and it was his and, and so forth. Um, but when you read Norman's book, you get reminded that as the Mahayana teachings, you know, which sort of Zen is a part, all of us uh, who practice here are a part, um, they were a different sort of thing. Um, in the Mahayana teaching, the Buddha um, comes um, uh, to be a different, uh, different sort of person. Um, the Buddha was no longer this exemplary su uh, person or uh, a superhero. Um, he was in these teachings an eternal cosmic principle, Norman says. So in these scriptures, the Buddha did not, in fact, um, painstakingly end suffering and pass into nirvana. Um, what those Mahayana teachings began to suggest um, was that he feigned passing um, in order to appease and motivate people like us um, whose crushing sufferings puts them um, in temporary need of a simple definition um, and a final goal of endless nirvana. So, so suddenly in Mahayana um, teachings, um, we become foregrounded, you know, we become the people, all those bodhisattvas and, and uh, folks who are on the path um, become fore foreground and the Buddha um, becomes a, a wonderful motivational um, presence um, and an inspiration for us. Um, but um, the purpose um, of this is compassion. Um, and the purpose of endless caring, the activities um, to relieve suffering and, um, and to motivate us through infinite time. So the Buddha in the Mahayana scriptures um, is 
really an imaginary embodiment of love, um, and that each and every person at our core is a potential Buddha, or um, as we practice here, is a Buddha. By vow, we are Buddha. And so that becomes um, this really wonderful opportunity to think, hmm, not a superhero, not the president of Buddhism, um, not one of the avengers of Mara and, and evil. Um, the Buddha is a presence that talked about compassion and honoring all beings um, as having Buddha nature and being intrinsically good, and that we all can work this path inspired by the Buddha and his teachings, um, and embracing the Buddha's teachings and embracing the possibility of the path, um, but not feeling like we have to march lockstep um, in the path of Buddha, the Supreme Being, um, or the way that teachers and writers and others throughout the years have said, this is what the Buddha taught, this is what you must do, and if you don't do this, you're doing it wrong, or you're not doing it as well. So the paramita that, that I've been talking about today is that the perfection of energy, or um, joyful effort, um, which I really like that interpretation of it. And it really talks about, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that um, these are the ways that we can be ready to practice. And so the first three paramitas, um, generosity, morality, and tolerance, um, in the traditional teachings, those are for everybody. Everybody can practice generosity, everybody can practice morality, we can all practice tolerance or forbearance. Everybody can do that. Lay folks and monks and, and uh, arhats and everyone. Um, and then the final three, energy, meditation, and wisdom, um, those in the ancient teachings were more for monks and nuns and, and others. Um, but in our current teachings, um, we believe that they're for everybody who has decided to follow the path of the Buddha. And certainly for everybody who has taken um, the bodhisattva vows, or whether formally or informally, by reading them and embracing them. Um, and that this, this um, uh, joyful effort, this, the first one and the second set, um, energy, meditation, and wisdom, which Norman calls energy, um, joy, joyful effort, um, that becomes really important because for us, the, the rest of those are harder work. That's why they were for nuns and monks originally. Um, and so they require a little harder work, and the benefit, if you practice generosity, you know immediately that you feel better because you've been able to help somebody or you've been able to do something. Um, and, you know, if you practice a moral behavior, you feel better about yourself and you know that the world is working a little better. And if you practice tolerance and forbearance, um, you can expect to be treated with the same sort of acceptance and tolerance. And so, so that becomes um, really good. Um, but the joy in this joyful effort, I think, is really crucial. Um, and, and you'll read about it in that book if, if you get a chance to take a look at it someday. Um, it implies the rising mind. So we have this opportunity to come to this effort and not begrudge it, you know, because um, for those who live in a monastery, you have to get up seven or six days a week at a certain time and be in a certain place. Um, we have to wear certain clothing. We have to um, learn certain um, medieval Japanese chants. Um, as we recite them in syllabic English. Um, so there's all of that stuff that we have to do, and it can become like a burden. Um, you know, I'm involved with a new teacher now, and, and so we're starting to look at Dogen, which many of you know is like theoretically one of my least favorite activities in life, because I don't understand, and it doesn't make any sense. Um, but I am this time attempting to do that 
um, with using this paramita of joyful effort, bringing energy to the study. And, and I've gone to a couple um, of Dogen's um, teachings so far, and I'm having a different experience this time. Um, I don't think you will ever see my name, comma, Dogen scholar, comma. Um, that, that seems really unlikely to me. Um, but I'm bringing this joyful effort because it's the arising mind. It's the possibility that there's something in those teachings. And I've read them before, and I'll read them again, that there's something in there um, that I'm going to hear that will enable me um, to be a more moral person, a more giving person, a person who lives more in acceptance of all others, and a person who lives um, for the benefit of all beings. Um, so this joyful effort really then um, is about um, this arising mind and bringing to our efforts, uh, bringing to my efforts, um, sort of an easefulness, um, a really relaxed <coughs> that I'm going to do it. I'm going to learn something, I hope. Um, and if I learn enough, then I'm going to be able to, um, if I learn enough, I'm going to be able to share that with other folks. Um, and that that will be a really good thing. Um, and Norman teaches, and, and I've always appreciated this in his teachings and, and the teachings of others, um, that one of the most important things to bring to the very profound study of Buddhism and the sutras and the texts and the history um, is your sense of humor. Um, and I've talked about this before, that one of my um, inspirations in life is going to the Zen Center, the one in San Francisco and others, and you're standing outside talking to people who are gregarious and they're chatting and they're saying, hi, how you doing? And you know, telling stories. And then the bell rings and they go in the door and this happens. And there's this thing that, <laughs> that happens to people that somewhere along the way they were taught that that's a, um, a meditative pose or a solemn, they should be solemn when they enter. Um, and Thich Nhat Hanh has spent years debunking that, that the most solemn um, thing we could do as we walk into the zenda together is smile at each other and hold each other safely and in peace and in ease. And so, so that, um, that makes perfect sense, it seems. The other thing Thich Nhat Hanh teaches is that worry and guilt are the opposite of joyful effort. Um, once you get used to the idea of being, um, uh, feeling guilty or shameful, um, uh, it really gets in the way of being willing to try something new, being willing to um, walk down the path differently than you did the last time, and being willing to ask for help and listen to that help and take that help if you're always afraid you're going to do it wrong, and that if you're afraid you're going to do it wrong, not because it's confusing, um, but because you're lazy and that you refuse to learn or can't learn. And that sort of a feeling in life um, really doesn't add to our walking the path in the way that the Buddha wanted us to. So I think the fact of the matter is that, that we all experience setbacks um, and that that's just a normal part of life. And so as we experience setbacks, um, we get an opportunity to say, hmm, and now I'll try again. Now I'll ask somebody for some guidance. Now I'll watch somebody else who's got a posture um, that's more disciplined than mine and see if I can learn from that posture um, how to do that. Um, and so there's this opportunity to bring easefulness and peace and, and even humor to our practice. Um, and in doing that, it becomes a practice with which we can practice joyfully. That joyful effort, it does take effort um, to be on the path of the Buddha. It does take effort um, to, to, um, to live by the vows and to live by the precepts. Um, but if we are allowing that we're going to have setbacks and we're going to have good days, we're going to be confused, and we're going to be crystal clear, um, and all of it's part of our humanness. 
And we are not an entity, a deity practicing Buddhism. We're human beings practicing together um, in the changing world. So um, I think one of the things that I always, I always try to remember to mention is that you know, sometimes this can sound like, well, you know, you're just saying that everybody should constantly be happy. I'm absolutely not saying that everyone should constantly be gleeful. I think lots of tough things happen in life um, and things that we actually do need and want we don't get um, and things that we have um, grown used to and that are useful to us in our human lives and our spiritual practice get taken away or go away. And some people um, suffer with clinical depression or clinical anxiety and that's a, a body chemistry thing. And so to say to those people, you should always be gleeful. I want, every time you come in the door, I want to see a great big smile on your face. Um, is disrespectful and unrealistic. Um, but what I think, I think what we can say is that even in those situations, um, there can be a lightening of that load if somebody is present with that person and shares that load, um, if somebody helps that person to know that clinical depression or clinical anxiety, not just things that you're coping with, those are actually things for which you can seek help, um, and which through perhaps meditation and perhaps um, other forms of somatic experience you can do something about um, and in many cases through medication and, and other sort of um, uh, psychiatric and, and uh, medical help you can do something about. So it's a way to avoid feeling guilt and shame even about that because I don't know if any of you have experienced it or know people um, that when you're feeling depressed um, not only are you feeling the darkness of the depression but also a shame about being depressed. You know, I've been around a long time, I shouldn't be depressed. Um, I've studied the Buddha's path for a long time, I should be able to walk out of this. Um, I see a friend of mine who's suffering from anxiety, I should be able to help calm him or her them down. Um, and so now I'm feeling shame about those things. Uh, Pema Chodron says, in those moments where we feel ungrounded, um, we have actually created a false sense of comfort based on artificial grounds. And by doing so, we, miss, we risk missing the very flavor of who we are. So again, it's that humanness, that, that, um, that, that opportunity for us to not be trying to be perfect Buddhas and not trying to be perfect citizens of the world or perfect members of the Sangha, but to say, I'm bringing it. Um, and I'm doing it joyfully because I'm bringing the good parts that you might want to share with me and I'm bringing the messy parts that I'm asking you to share with me because I need help, and I'm bringing the confused parts because sometimes we're all confused about the same stuff and we can have a laugh, or we can do some studying, or we can do whatever, um, have some experience. Bernie Glassman, who passed away this year, who was the founder of Zen um, Peacemakers International, um, put it this way. He said, our practice is to see the oneness of life, to truly experience one body, um, unity, and balance to fully appreciate and nurture one another. That is the practice of Zazen, and that is the practice of peacemaking. That is the practice of peacemaking. And so I think that by following um, the Buddhist path and doing it with joyful effort, you know, not just doing, bringing it with energy because we know we have to work harder because you know, we were raised in families that said, work harder, keep your nose to the grindstone, work harder, work harder. Um, and that some days that's not beneficial. Um, but that to work harder because um, this is the path. You know, we don't have Zazen and life outside, we have life. And we don't have me and you, we have us as the Buddhas, as little Buddhas. 
and we have this opportunity to really care for each other. Um, and I really believe that um, failure um, is impossible. If we bring that joyful effort, if we understand the paramitas, um, not that we're always going to be smiling big smiles, uh, not that we're always going to um, be, you know, um, waving our, our white horseshoe thing around because we've achieved the ultimate on earth or, or in the Buddha's way, um, but because we're doing it together and that we know um, that the reason we're here on a Saturday morning, the reason we do this is because our lives make more sense um, and our lives are more comfortable and our lives are more rich um, when we share them with each other along the path. So I'll share one final um, teaching from Thich Nhat Hanh with you. Um, and this is his mindful um, training on dwelling happily in the present moment. And he teaches aware that life is available only in the present moment and that it is possible to live happily in the here and now. We are committed to training ourselves to live deeply each moment of daily life. We will try not to lose ourselves in dispersion or to be carried away by regrets about the past, worries about the future, or the cravings, anger, hurt, or jealousy in the present that are real for all of us. We will practice mindful breathing to come back to what is happening in this present moment. We are determined to learn the art of mindful living by touching the wondrous and refreshing and healing elements that are inside and around us, and by nourishing seeds of joy, peace, love, and understanding in ourselves, thus facilitating the work of transformation and healing in us, in our sanghas, and in our deep consciousness. So my invitation for you all today is um, to remember to live joyfully um, and to remember that if you bring joyful effort, um, the rest will follow. Thank you. Questions or thoughts or ideas or teachings of Dogen that you'd like me to understand? Thank you very much for that talk. I, uh, it really uh, spoke quite a bit to me. Um, because, um, well, I don't want to go on too long, but basically I consider myself a lazy person, okay? And also, I've been feeling for a while now like I'm in a rut. Going to the Zendo is like just something I have to do, because I've told myself I have to do it. And it's not because there's a joy or anything. It's, it's that kind of neutral state of my life. I'm just here, like a rock, you know, with moss growing on it. <laughs> and um, actually, a little bit because of a dream I had, I, I realized that, um, that this body-mind needs a certain amount of maintenance to, to operate fully. And um, so, in, in very small ways I've been trying to change things just a little bit, kind of use that imagination, like, well, what else could I do, or what, what, in what other way could I be, you know, that's a little different from being lazy, being in a rut, feeling guilty, etc. And um, I have to say, I feel like this, I've had a little bit of success, and it's not whoopee, you know, I'm turning somersaults. It's it's sort of subtle. Yeah. It's um, 
but there is actually a certain amount of joy might be a strong word <laughs> but you know what I mean something there's something that comes with making an effort that actually sort of feeds back in on itself and gives you more energy to make more effort and I didn't really realize that because I'm lazy etc etc so you really spoke quite a bit to that for me today on kind of several different levels mm -hmm. so Thanks. thank you yeah I think sometimes what comes first rather than joy um, even though there's a part of me that likes to see everybody smiling um, but then I would probably judge that too because it's like she's not really smiling that's you know he's, he's just doing that because it happens but I think what comes first is that that sense of ease that we're taught that uh, Norman mentions in the book first that sense of ease that you know what I'm not actually lazy um, and you know we can use the language that each of us finds appropriate but but it's just my body needs rest you know my body needs um, better nutrition and some exercise and once in a while um, you know there's a naughty boy or girl in all of us and and once in a while, the alarm clock rings, and it's like, I'm not getting up. And even that, even that little bit of um, taking care of oneself, um, first can bring that ease, I think. It's like, this is not make me a bad person or an unskillful practitioner or necessarily a lazy person. Um, but I'm going to, when I do my practice, or when I get up and into my day, I'm going to do it with a little more energy because I took these few minutes to take care of myself. And so I think... The first thing that we might experience is just a sense of ease, like, mm, okay, I don't have to, I can do it and I don't have to be all judgmental about it. I don't have to feel guilt and shame. I can just do it. Um, and, you know, that, as you say, well, the wonderful thing about that is then it gives us energy to actually do the practice that, that we've chosen to be committed to. So, you know, if eventually joy comes, that's great. If sometimes that leads to a smile, that's great. Um, but if it leads to a, a uh, balance between uh, mind and heart, that's enough. Yeah, I also want to thank you for uh, your Dharma talk. Uh, it spoke very well to me about um, exercising compassion. Uh, first I was highlighted with the, this thought of this imagining uh, Imagining the world in a more generous place, and you know, at times I can tune into that and see the joy of the sunshine and smile, and someone smiles back. Just that generosity and lifts my spirit, and and see the world in a more generous place. Um, and then I like the way that you ended with the sense of. You know, really, generosity also begins with myself and being compassionate to ourselves. So, um, some <clears throat> difficult things happened at, uh, in my work, and so it caused a great deal of uh, fear and hurt uh, for myself. And just realizing, you know, I'm hurting, and then, you know, when it rains, it pours. Um, uh, went to see my sister, my only living relative, over the Easter. That was a very hurtful experience. So rather than, you know, having a pleasant experience, came away very uh, hurt by that. And so just to realize, I've been carrying sort of this hurt and dwelling and ruminating, and just just to have sort of this likeness. Oh yeah, you know, 
I am suffering and hurting right now and just to be generous, you know, with myself. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, from the beginning of recorded history, people have used wine and festive foods and, and um, you know, uh, carnivals and the like, the court jesters to, um, to bring ease because the reality of humanness is every day is not good. Um, and the reality is that there are things that are going to happen with our relationships and our relatives and our, and our work and school and other stuff um, that sometimes are painful. Um, and sometimes, you know, we did something to, to set that fire um, and sometimes we didn't. Um, but either way, it causes pain to us and others. And, you know, it would be an ideal world if we could wake up the next day and, you know, go to work and fix it, you know. To speak to each person, bring everybody together, hand out a Dunkin' Donut, and say it's all done. Um, but that's not the way it works, right? And so in the meantime, as you're doing, acknowledging that it was painful, uh, and acknowledging that your situation with your sister was painful, and then saying, you know what, I need to take care of myself a little bit, whatever that is. Uh, might be lying in the hammock in the backyard, might be, you know, whatever it is, going for a long bike ride or a walk by the ocean, it might be something, going with a friend, you might be coming here on a Saturday and just being able to speak it out loud mm -hmm. that I'm in pain um, and that I know that I will be in less pain tomorrow and eventually that this will get integrated into my life. But right now, I need to speak that pain so I hear it and so that you can all love me while I'm having this experience. So, so from the beginning of time, we've, we've had um, uh, teachings about there are just times when we have to have some fun and take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I've been uh, thinking about a, ch a shift that has happened over the last well, many years, really, but um, it's just sort of become easier to uh, practice joyful effort. And um, I, I think I want to share it just to maybe give some hope or something, because uh, it, was, it was like a shift in perspective that I didn't necessarily think was ever going to happen um, just in terms of like uh, I used to always be um, not always but very often anxious about challenges and um, like whether it was school or work or um, practice even uh, or study and um, just feeling like oh god I have to do <laughs> this thing and I'm gonna you know probably suck at it and people are going to judge me and um, it, it was hard to bring myself to those challenges uh, but over enough time I've tried to see these things as opportunities and, and uh, things that will help me and other people um, and to just sort of try and silence those, those voices that are um, really critical and not enthusiastic <laughs> and um and so it just sort of happened over a long time mostly unconsciously i think but i was definitely trying to um bring that forward for a long time so um it's not all the time but <laughs> but there are more and more things that i find i can um just see it in a different perspective as as an opportunity and um especially with practice where uh, this can be intimidating to a lot of people. And it was intimidating to me, and it still is in certain ways. Um, but also, 
it's amazing that we have like this temple, for example, and it's amazing that we can come here and practice together and focusing on that really helps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think that's one of the gifts is, is um, that, you know, part of being the best little boy or girl in America and part of being the best little Buddhist is when those voices come up, the voices of doubt or the voices that you're not doing this right or you're just too stupid to be a Buddhist. Um, you know, what we've been taught traditionally is don't listen to those voices, get rid of those voices. And I think the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh and others say, listen to those voices, talk to them, make friends with them, because they're there, you know, they don't go away. Um, so you get this opportunity to find that equanimity. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm not too stupid to be a Buddhist. You know, I, 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 I hear that, um, but it's not true. It's a mental formation. Somebody told me no child believes he or she is stupid. Um, and so somebody taught, taught us that. Um, and so we've been taught that and now lives in the back of our brain. So pretending like it's not there isn't helpful, I, I think. But I think the gift of this joyful effort is to say, I hear that, and um, I'm watching other people who have this beautiful practice that I can learn from. Um, and so that's a different voice. And so you get this opportunity to say, hmm, okay, so I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try it again. I'm gonna try it some more. Um, and I'm gonna listen to all the voices. Um, and I'm gonna work with the arising mind of joyful effort. I'm gonna work to make sure these voices are louder than those voices. Anybody else? Or shall we go have some tea and cookies? <laughs> <laughs>